Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is brought to you by The Joyful Fashionista, an online marketplace for buying and selling secondhand and sustainable clothing. Make cash selling as you declutter or buy sustainable and fabulous fashion. You know Frigalisters and welcome. Today I have a special guest and of course all of my guests are special. But this guest is especially special. In fact, I'm sitting in her living room enjoying a cup of tea and I've just been looking at all her fabulous jewellery. And let me just say she has some wonderful tales to tell so it's going to be a great podcast. But first, I have a favour to ask of you. If you enjoy this podcast and find it useful for you, please pay it forward by sharing with a friend. And even better, please follow the Joyful Frugalista podcast. I have a goal of having 100,000 downloads by Christmas and we've just clocked over 90,000. So I'd really love your help in getting to that goal. Today, I'm interviewing a special Canberraan woman who has spent a lifetime in service to others which was recognised this year when she was awarded Senior Australian of the Year. And in fact, we're recording this on the 1st of October, which is International Day of Older Persons, so it's very fitting. Val Dempsey has volunteered with St John Ambulance for more than 50 years. She started volunteering at age 10, and I'm not going to tell you her age. She She can share should she wish, and she continues to be an active volunteer. In fact, while we're sitting here, she is listening out to see if there's any emergencies on her phone because she is responsible for monitoring the phone over a long weekend. So welcome, Val. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. Well, thank you for having me in your home. I really appreciate it. And it's just so lovely to get to see some of your energy and the passion that you have for what you do and for others. I don't dig deep to have this it's it rises to the surface every day every day you wake up and you look around and you think to yourself somewhere someone is going to need that extra something and that's the gift of kindness kindness mm. and this is something during the pandemic i think that's become even more important especially when we don't have so much face to face contact yeah the gift of kindness is something that is expressed throughout our community i'm not all that special. I am only one of thousands and thousands of people who across Australia have that open heart that allows that kindness to be able to share with others. And throughout the pandemic, it just required for you to be able to express that. And I was placed in a very privileged position in being able to see the amount of kindness that was being delivered across our community throughout Canberra and throughout Australia. While we all couldn't travel, we certainly had our phones and using the phone to be in touch with all of our members at St John Ambulance in Canberra, that was um, a very uh, heartwarming moment when I was able to contact so many people and extend that kindness and friendship toward them. And when people are in a community, when they join an organisation, that organisation develops a fellowship within people. And as a community that thrives on fellowship and who who also have people in that situation as their basis that we actually are here for the service of humanity, when people join such an organisation, 
and then they're suddenly told that they can't use that gift that they have and go out to be with people during the COVID crisis. There was a huge amount of loss and grief associated with not being able to leave the home and to be able to express that that they had learned and that that they had in their heart to be able to go to people and look after them in their absolute hour of need. And those hours of need went on for months and months and months. And throughout that whole time, what I discovered was that people were going through a huge amount of loss and grief. And not only the people staying at home who couldn't be with their families and friends, but the people who actually provided a service to be able to go and extend themselves in moments of crisis. And all of our wonderful volunteering first aiders right the way across Australia developed the same problems. They are used to being the saviour. They're used to being (laughs) the people who go out to help others. And suddenly they found that they had their hands chopped off and their feet were tied and they couldn't move and they couldn't reach out because none of that was available to them. And they did suffer dreadfully throughout that whole time. I guess it must be hard when you're so used to helping other people. It must Is it hard to ask for help yourself and you're a volunteer who needs a bit of help? It most certainly is. I think I've had a lifetime of being in service and I don't regret one single day of that. But in finding the absolute question within your own heart to say, hello, what about me? It just never arose for myself. I have a fabulous family who perceive my needs well before I do. (laughs) You were talking before about grief. And of course, we've just seen the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and the profound outpouring of grief, not just in Australia, not just in the UK, but globally. And you have some, this is this has resonated for you on quite a, a deep level too. Well, it certainly has. Our beautiful queen, God rest her soul, was in my life from the time that I was a very, very little girl. On her first visit to Australia, I was about four years old. And I remember going with my brother and my younger brother, who was really a baby in arms, and all of our kindergarten group from uh, Griffith Kindergarten, because Griffith Kindergarten had only just opened. And my dad was a local bus driver, so the bus pulled up and everybody piled on board and all the mums and the other dads, they all lined up down along the avenue and we were waiting for her to arrive. And she came from the Air Force Base and it was really such a long wait. Mum had Milo in the thermos, if I remember correctly, or (laughs) Ovaltine probably in those days, hot chocolate or something. And we all had our flags and we'd had our prettiest clothes on and we waited and waited and waited and there was this cavalcade of vehicles arriving past us and we're all sitting there waving and she went whoosh and she was gone. But I fell in love. And from that moment on, and I've had many different occasions where I've been able to see her in person, not to meet her, but to be so close with her, she has never failed to please. She, she was the epitome of graciousness and it really does reflect a whole lifetime of service. And for me, she was a really great role model and I shall miss her terribly. And I do believe that other people right the way across the world do have a similar feeling and a, and a similar experience. We all have our own experiences. 
But while I have my experience of absolutely thinking she's the most adorable lady, there are other people who have different feelings within their heart, and I also respect that. And not everybody is of the same ilk, but for myself and my family, we most certainly will miss her. We had photographs all around the house, and at school we sang God Save the Queen every Monday morning in the quadrangle. And so she was really quite a part of our lives. We, her photograph was in every classroom. And it's something that we don't see these days so often. And just to know that I was given such an enormous um, opportunity and what a privilege to be able to attend her funeral became very personal for me. So you travelled to the UK to attend the funeral. We were talking a bit about this before. So what was it, what was it like being there? Well, I was invited personally by the Prime Minister and asked if I could travel to London to attend Her Majesty's funeral to represent the people of Australia. What an absolute honour. And thank you for that again, Mr Prime Minister. The, the idea of going to London in the first instance means that I have to leave a family at home. So there was a little bit of preparation to take care of things at home and be prepared and uh, 24 hours and I was ready to roll. So hopped on the plane, went to Sydney, hopped on the plane, was met by cordial people who looked after my every single need, provided me with comfort, fed me beautifully, met the Prime Minister who came on board and said, are you all comfortable? And gracious me, yes, thank you very much, that's all right. And the next time he came out, he had shoes and socks off, so I figured that he was one of us after all. <laughs> and and that, was, that was wonderful to see him in a relaxed, comfortable mode. When we stopped at Singapore again, we were taken off the plane for a two-hour rest and then back on the plane. So we did this in three eight-hour bursts. And in Dubai, it was really quite extraordinary. Off the plane we went. And I'd asked if somebody could phone my husband, please, because I wanted to let him know that we were travelling well. So that was arranged. And I said to him, oh, my goodness, Lindsay, did you know that sometimes you can fly over the pyramids from here to London? Wow. And he said, well, you better ask Mr Albanese if he can actually do this for you. (laughs) I said, hang on a minute. Why don't you ask him? So I took the phone into where he was um, actually playing pool with Dylan. And uh, so Dylan and he were having a, a moment of downtime playing pool. And I walked in, I put the phone to his face and I said, excuse me, Mr Albanese, Lindsay wants to ask you something. <laughs> and hello, Lindsay, is she always like this after three bottles of champagne? <laughs> and, and Lindsay answered, on the loudspeaker, well, actually, it only takes half a glass to get it going. <laughs> and Lindsay said, how's it all going? And he said, yeah, we're doing well. And he said, um, I'm told that you can um, divert the plane over the pyramids for my missus. And he said, oh, well, I'm, I'm not, well, no, uh, uh, I'm not really sure about that. That would be up to the pilot. So the conversation ended and goodbye, nice to talk to you. So we're back on the plane and they give you another meal. and. Then they say, get your jammies on, you've got to go to sleep because we're off to London. And I thought, that's getting exciting. And so you, do, you, you, you don't argue, you, you, you know, the, the chair comes out and suddenly you've, you're in a sleeping pod. So I popped the blanket over my head in my jammies 
and I don't know how long it was because I'm trying to rest. And next minute, there was a massive commotion on the plane, a lot of noise. And I thought, oh, I'm easily startled. You need to know that. And oh my goodness, what's going on? And they said, get Val up. Mr. Albanese said to wake Val up. And I thought, because I hadn't actually been asleep. I was just resting, but with the blanket over my face. And so God bless Kim from um, Tasmania. He wanted to shake me awake, but he didn't know which part of the body to touch. He's such a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the Prime Minister's person came down and, and woke me up or got me up. And I said, what's the matter? He said, get up, get up, and unbuckle and help me up. He said, come to the window. And I said, whatever for? And he said, look out the window. And there below me, like the top of two salt and pepper shakers, were these two pyramids. <laughs> there were pyramids, absolutely pyramids. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And so I went, you've got to be joking. And the guy, the gentleman from up in the Prime Minister's area, which is way past first class in their own separate area, and all the doors were open to get there. So I went tearing up in my pyjamas and looked for him. And I ran along the corridor and then I found him sitting in this boardroom with other people. And I said, you bloody well did it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you bloody well did it. And he said, Val, did you see the pyramids? And I said, did I? What? You better believe it. So, so you're excited. speaking to the Prime Minister at this point? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And I said, you did it. I said, Lindsay will probably even vote for you next time. <laughs> well, that's lucky then. <laughs> Yeah. And so then you arrive in London and you're there for the funeral. And so what was it like being there during the funeral as that took part? Like, so you, you arrived there, a lot of people there. What happened? So we arrived, we landed about 160 kilometres from London proper and a bus came to pick us up. And everybody knew that really it's going to take a while because this is, this is a massive exercise to get people through barricades and security and and a whole lot, and we're 160 k's out of town. And of course, if you haven't been on the plane, then one has to hang on till you go through a lot of traffic for 160 k's. So from the back of the bus on the way in, it was, can you pull up, love? Oh, I need a loo. <laughs> I can tell you that wasn't me. But anyway, it took a little longer to get to London than anticipated for that reason, because can you try and find a loo on a freeway? It doesn't work. And I did hear someone say, look, a bush would do, mate. I've got to go when you've got to go. And you're there. Obviously, the whole country is in mourning, so there's a lot of people out and about. So I can imagine it was very busy as well. It was. So in travelling, just in trying to get into London through all the security, but then you found that the roads were quiet. There wasn't a lot of traffic. When we arrived in London proper, because we were staying in Westminster, and as we passed all the well-known iconic um, sites, the big spire, the, the big wheel, the abbey, we didn't pass Buckingham Palace, and I'm glad of that because there were so many people lined up to go inside. But we were on the opposite side of the Thames, and we arrived at the Horse Guard Hotel, and through all the security, but next to my hotel, there was another hotel very close, and it was surrounded by black, big black SUV kind of four-wheel drive vehicles with blackened windows and people wearing earplugs and wires. They looked like robots. 
but there were no people walking in the streets. It was so very subdued. All the flags from other nations were attached to the cars and you just knew that this was a pretty high-profile moment. So being in the... We went into the hotel, um, opened by the gentleman with nice white gloves, and I thought, oh, that's a bit posh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are there for the Queen's funeral and you've been personally asked to be there by Australia's Prime Minister, so you'd expect it to be a bit posh, I guess. Well, I tell you what, it it certainly... um, I had no vision about what it was going to be like or where we would be staying, but I must say that they outdone themselves in in the accommodation, in the support that they gave me and the people that were there that made my stay so really beautiful and I was shown to my room which had a bath in it (laughs) and it was red brocade windows and just such a beautiful, a beautiful arrangement and specifically I was so grateful. And so we went down for dinner and then the next day, we had a day to ourselves. People who had arranged for their phones to be able to be contacted, that worked very well. I thought my phones were working, so I was away for the whole day. I walked up to all the names on the Monopoly board. You could see Bond Street, The Strand, Marlborough Fair, all of those places. So I'd walked a long distance all the way up And you would pass these pop-up caravans with buy your queen's head on the end of a pen bobbing around places. Uh, (laughs) I'm not quite sure about all of that, given the mood. Mm. Mm. It was really really quite a moment where you looked and you thought, everybody has their moment, but the streets were very quiet. So I ended up going up to the top of the town and I caught a taxi up to Marks and Spencers. I, I wanted to buy a black jacket. And I think everybody in England, well done you lot, because you must all be a very small size because there were no sized jackets available for me and uh, certainly nothing in black. They would have all sold out by that stage. But the thing that struck me the most when I was in town on that Saturday, having had two hours sleep, was the £6.95 for a cup of tea with a tea bag in it in Marks and Spencers in the... <laughs> in the cafeteria and I thought gracious and I said to them that's um you know how do people in London go about getting a cup of tea oh no they bring a thermos it's only you guys that come over that you know yeah well it's very austere times in in London which I can imagine now I understand you bumped into someone fairly important literally well I yes that really did happen we'd the next day we went to Australia House and we had a lovely lunch there and it was a beautiful place and the day after that it was time to go to the funeral, so at 7 o'clock in the morning, off we went on the bus and we were taken up to the Abbey. We had to walk the last three-quarters of a mile, so I managed to chat to all the bobbies and all the security guards who had come literally from across all the, the area of Great Britain to support this major event. And I looked up and the Abbey was there, and as we got closer, I thought, oh, this is getting a bit real. And um, I had my hankies available, so that was important for me. But shown into the uh, into the abbey, we sussed out where the loo was because that was really important for some of us. And as I'm talking on the older Australian day, I'm sure some of you will understand exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. So we sussed out where that was and then we were shown to our seats and asked to remain there till the end of the process and that everybody had left the building, please do not leave your seats. So the whole service was completely remarkable 
and everything was quiet and everything was sombre and you couldn't hear, you know, when you're in the picture theatre and somebody says, oh, I'll roll a jaffa down the aisle, mate, you know, that'll set them all off. There was not even a rustle of a chip packet. There was nothing happening. If you heard anybody talking, it was in the quietest whisper. Then all the heads turned to the entrance of the abbey and I'm eight rows back in the nave underneath these glorious golden arches, a little bit more more ornate than Macca's arches. I'm glad to hear. <laughs> Beautiful and a very, very tall building. And a lot of the sound was resonating up into the roof. So some of the sound had dissipated, but you could hear people breathing. And as she passed me by, the audible gasps and the indrawn breath, you could hear that moment when people realised this was happening, as it did for me. And she passed me by, and I remember Robert Menzies' words, she only just but passed me by, and I shall love her till I die. And I thought to myself, that was so appropriate, you know, to think about that. And it was a beautiful service, the music, everything about it, the voices of angels singing, it was just glorious. And at the end of it, people were filing past, kings, queens, little princes, princesses, all the important people. My grandlord prior, Mark Compton, was there in his code of chivalry attire with a big cape. And that was, that was nice to see that. But as they all filed out, I'd said to the guy from Tasmania, Kim, and I said, Kim, Mother Nature calls love, I've got to go. So quietly I looked behind me, which was an aisle. We were eight rows back and then there was an aisle behind us. And I knew where to duck out to. You've done your bit of a recce mission to scope oh. out where the facilities were. Yep, done the recce. And I said, mate, I've got to go now. And uh, everybody's left the church. It'll be right. So off I went. Clip, clop, clip, clop. And the, the floor is uneven. It's not terribly well lit. I've got a broad brim hat on. So things aren't looking very clear. So I'm carefully stepping because I'm in little heels and I rarely wear them. Because of course you do. You don't wear sneakers to the Queen's funeral. Indeed you do. <laughs> it's not a fashion parade, but one really do thought that she deserved much more than the sneakers moment. You're quite right. So down the stairs and along the little corridor, which was now taken up with people who were resting after being in the parade for so long. But I made my way there got myself a glass of water and came back. And as I was coming back, little did I realise that those people who had left the building were coming back for a cup of tea. Well, good on them. So they're all filing now, coming at my face. So I managed to get past those, up the steps and a couple of steps and back onto the corridor that was leading back to my chair. Well, well, well. I truly thought everybody had left the building. <laughs> But I have to tell you, there would have to be somebody coming the other way, which I hadn't appreciated. I was heading with my head down, watching the stones, and there coming at me were four beef eaters, beautifully embroidered clothing, and I was looking at them, and they had the spears tucked under their arm, and they were going ka-chunk, 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 marching towards me, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. And then they saw me and they veered to my left. And so this wave of beef eaters coming at me with spears. So I stepped quietly to the right 
and kept walking. I thought, geez, I better get out of here because this looks a bit official. And I made a few more steps. And then whoever was behind the bee feeder didn't do the wave to the follow them. They just kept walking as I did. And they were equally looking down to the ground for, I'm sure, to make sure about the surface of the ground. And next minute, my face is in Mr. Biden's chest. Sorry, just let's go back this. So the US president, Mr. Biden. Oh, yes, that's him. (laughs) You know him very well now. Yeah, that's him. And I looked and I thought, "Uh uh-oh. And I looked up and I saw the American flag on his chest and I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And I looked up further underneath my broad-brimmed hat and there was his face, and I said, oh, excuse me. And I looked again, and I said, oh, g'day, mate, how are you? <laughs> As you do when you greet the US president. As you do. <laughs> and he said, I'm good. And I said, well, that's nice. Excuse me, sir, I'll just step aside. And I took two paces to go back to my chair, where I promptly collapsed and sat down. I said, did that really happen? And <laughs> Paul Kim from Tasmania beautiful gentleman, a police officer, and he looked at me and he said, we could see the train wreck coming. (laughs) He was coming from our left, you were coming from the right, and both of you were looking at the ground, and the beef eaters went past you, but he didn't, and we could see the train wreck happen, and we couldn't do a thing about it. Not a thing. And I thought, oh, yeah. Oh, he, he was all right, you know, he was okay. Good thing I didn't bump him because I'm not that good on my feet and I'm not sure about him. So I'm very glad I didn't actually knock him over. Are you younger than President Biden? I think you um, might be. Yes, I am a bit younger. <laughs> yeah, and I thought to myself, gosh, I really didn't want to smack into him like that. That was a bit awkward. So I, I actually feel I should write him a letter and say I'm terribly sorry if I embarrassed you, you know, by, by being in your face. Yes, so it was quite an amazing trip. You've, you've gone from, you know, being on the Prime Minister's private plane, redirecting the plane <laughs> to see the pyramids, being in the UK, attending the Queen's funeral, and then yes. literally bumping into the US President. Indeed. But I really want to ask about why you were so passionate about volunteering, and especially why is first aid so important? When I was a very little girl, we... Uh lived in Narrabunda and in those days it was really considered the other side of the tracks. For, for those who don't know, Narrabunda is a suburb of, of Canberra and back in the early days there weren't that many people in Canberra. No, there weren't. When I was born there was about 26,000 people in Canberra and the newer suburbs that were growing at that time, my mum and dad were living over in Turner at the base of Black Mountain. People might be familiar with that as being the Telecom Tower Mountain So in those days, it was across the river and out into the newer suburb of Narrabunda. I remember cows being in that area, which was next door to us. There were three houses on the side of our street. And then after that, it was simply cows and a paddock. And so Narrabunda grew up as I did. But Lower Narrabunda was a high migrant area. So they brought many, many people in, people who had worked on the Snowy Mountain Scheme, people who had worked And they were housed in hostels around Canberra, building the new national capital. But the high immigrant area was also in Narrabunda area as well. So it was considered to be a different kind of area of Canberra. We had the causeway, which was down by the river, but we also started up with this lower Narrabunda. 
And in those particular days, there were no schools, no kindergartens in Griffith. It was the top end of Narrabunda. So my brother, when he started school in 52, 53, he had to go down to the primary school and infant school down in Lower Narrabunda. And as I grew up and became four or five, I actually went to the brand new Griffith Kindergarten School. So it was very, very early days. But being in this family of five, Dad wasn't well from the war and he often couldn't go to work. So Mum had to work very hard in looking after this family that was growing. And if we, she had lots and lots of fruit trees in the backyard. She's Cornish and you never waste anything if you're Cornish. Everything, what goes around, comes around. But there was a lady who was our neighbour and she was a triple certificated sister. And she was working at a local doctor's surgery. But on the weekends, she would dress in this magnificent, what I thought, crisp white uniform, white gloves, misty grey stockings, and this funny-looking hat on her head. And I thought she looked spectacular. I must say, I do love a man in uniform, but boy, this lady could really wear one beautifully. And I, <laughs> s- and I said to her, what is it that you do? And she said, well, I'm a nurse, but on weekends, she said, I look after my community as a volunteer. And I thought, I think I could do that. What do you do? She said, I do first aid. Now, there were girl guides and there were Boy Scouts, and my brother, my brothers all did Boy Scouts, and I didn't want girl guides. I wanted to be a Boy Scout because they looked like they were having so much more fun. But actually, it was this dear lady who said to me, why don't you come out with me? Wow. Why don't you come out with me? So you were 10 then? Yeah. And so I did. I went out to the local swimming hole with her, which was about, oh, about 16, maybe 18 mile out of town the, at that the stage. The Camber pool or another one? Out I was wondering because the Camber, mm. as you know, is the clothing optional one. <laughs> yes. Well, there is a, yes. And we discovered that in our, um, in our very early 20s and 30s. But no, this is the old Cotter swimming hole which is at the base of the Dakota Dam. And many people, sadly, had drowned in this particular area. So St John Ambulance set up a log cabin hut and it was called St John Ambulance Brigade. And she would drive out there in her little Morris Minor, the one with the indicators used to flip up on the outside. (laughs) So if you put the indicator on, this little arm would come up and around the corner you would go. So out on a dirt road out to the cotter, past the scout hall, past the cotter pumping station, across the bridge, rickety, rickety wooden bridge, and down into the cotter proper. In those days, there was a tea garden set up and and a house where you could get a cup of tea, and it was all very pretty. But we also had this um, first aid post. And I remember going out there on many, many occasions. And that idea of that enormous idea of service before self, it, it just started it. It got under your skin. Look, I've had lots of showers try to scrub that off and it doesn't leave me. It just stays. And from that time on, it really has just grown. And I don't think that there's been ever a day that I've ever actually thought that I didn't want to do that kind of work, that it, that it was just the most tremendous opportunity to be able to do that but I know what it feels like to have kindness offered to you. As I mentioned, Dad wasn't well and Mum really did battle with five kids, 
If you didn't grow it, if you didn't dig it up, if you didn't shoot it, if you didn't catch it, you didn't eat. So they were very proficient at providing lots of things for us kids. If you didn't recycle it, if you weren't wearing somebody else's clothes, all of that kind of background. But we also lived in a very generous community. And when Dad was really ill, there would be a a big milk can of milk left at the front door or loaves of bread or that extra half a lamb that somebody had left over. I know what kindness offered does feel like. And, you know, for that, for that moment, if you appreciate how generous people can be, and there was not a lot of money going around down there, but the kindness, let alone what they actually physically did, that instilled in me that when you offer that kindness, and for me it just happened to end up being first aid, it really comes back to you a thousandfold mm-hmm. as it has. Now, I know, Val, you are very strong on a particular message during this year, your year of Senior Australian of the Year, and it's particularly around young people and young people getting their licences. That's right. So yep. could you share with us what, what you would like to see happen? From a very personal perspective, it is so vitally important to me that people who drive a vehicle have knowledge of first aid. The first person that pulls up at a traffic accident is generally another driver. And if they know what to do, more importantly, if they know what not to do, if they can actually step forward and apply the rules and the principles of first aid, we know that lives will be saved. This goes back to an accident my daughter was involved in when she was 17 and a half years old. She had friends visiting Canberra, asked to borrow my car. And sadly, an accident happened. She lived, but the boy in the front seat of the car died in her arms. When people came to the accident, she remembered very clearly. They said, we want to help, but we don't know what to do. We have to change that. We will change that. We can change that. So this year, this whole year, apart from all the wonderful things that have happened to me personally, I remain adamant that my mission is to have people understand the absolute need for people to understand what first aid is, about delivering those skills in time of crises, and more importantly, as our children come up and want to learn to drive a car, they want that independence. They want to be able to do that thing that is such a free thing to do in Australia, is that they have an understanding about first aid and that they're able to deliver and supply that to anybody throughout any time of crisis, but particularly that they should have this knowledge and ability to understand that they can step forward at a road accident and they can make a difference. We know that the national road toll is horrendous at over 1,200 lives lost and it's growing. In Tasmania alone, they had 31 lives lost when I went to visit them earlier this year. That's crept up to over 40. We know that right throughout Australia, there are people losing their lives on our roads every day. The National Road Safety Strategy is to reduce our road statistics by 13% by 2030. And we can do this. We can be a part of this. The national strategy by 2050 is to have zero road deaths. 
We can do that through safe roads. We can do that by driver behaviour and changing that. We can do that by ensuring all the cars on the road are safe. But once that accident happens, it is truly first aid that will stand the test of time and save lives. It is mandated right throughout Europe and in 13 other countries across the world that people with a driver's licence have that knowledge. Australia, wake up. We really need to have that in our Australian community so that we have no longer families left wondering why people who came to that accident didn't know what to do. This we can change. This we will change. Thank you, Val. I'm sitting here with Val, so I I can see how visibly she is moved by this message. This is a gift that will save lives. So if you've enjoyed this podcast and you feel it resonates with you, go and do a first aid course and even better, get your kids to do a first aid course as they're learning to drive. Now, we're wrapping up now and I have one final question and I ask all my guests about a frugalista tip, but I'm going to ask you a particular one, Val, because I've been into your room and seen your jewellery um, <laughs> collection, which is quite substantial. For those of us who do like a bit of bling and, you know, might be, say, op shopping a bit of bling, what are the things you could look for to find a piece that's of value? I think the first thing is if you find and you're looking very closely, don't forget to look in the junk box pile because sometimes things are missed. So do go through it and pull out those things that attract you. It's okay to be able to find that little bit of gold or that little piece of silver with a gemstone attached and it's really a very nice thing. But go for the things that attract you the most. And if you don't know what to look for, join your local gem club, love, because I can tell you they will teach you enormously about gemstones (laughs) and what to look for. But don't forget to go and look at at your wonderful fates and all of the people that are doing church fates and school fates, go and have a sticky beak at their chuck away jewellery because you can often find things in there. Val has some beautiful jewellery. It's just absolutely amazing. So she has some great tips. Val, thank you so much for sharing so much of your heart with us today on this podcast. It's, it's been a lovely yarn, but I, it's also been deeply moving. So thank you so much for the work you do and congratulations once again for being awarded Senior Australian of the Year this year and for your 50 years of service with St John Ambulance. Well, you're, you're very welcome and thank you so much for allowing me the time to express the joy that I've felt throughout this year and the humility I have yet to learn completely because at the moment I am so filled with the joy of and the privilege of being able to be a part of this year across Australia, meeting so many wonderful people and having so many amazing things happen for me. So thank you for the opportunity to share that joy. Thank you. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley.
every night.